Good morning, Grace. Your reading this morning comes from Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give you peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Good morning. Well, we are continuing in the book of Haggai. If you missed last week, we're spending three weeks to cover the book of Haggai and the two chapters. It's a, a small book written during the post-exilic time, the time when the remnant had returned uh, from captivity back to the land in Jerusalem. And if you heard last week's sermon, Haggai confronted Israel on their mixed-up priorities And so he called them to consider their ways and order their lives around Yahweh's priorities. And God's priority in that passage was calling the people to resume building the temple so they could offer right worship and dwell in the presence of God. And so we looked at how that relates to our priorities, ensuring that we line up our priorities with the Lord's priorities. And so hopefully that sermon landed and you were fired up Sunday afternoon. You're going to put things right. You're motivated. You're going to create new habits and goals, take dominion in all areas of my life. Monday, you crushed it. And it was glorious. And then by Wednesday, things got harder. It was more of a grind. It was harder to see the glory of all the things you had to do. Your checklist maybe didn't get crossed off as swiftly. You miss family worship. You already broke that daily resolution to wake up at 5 a.m. Or maybe you did get everything crossed off your list last week. But it didn't bring immediate and glorious results you were hoping for. You were more present with the kids. but They still disobeyed. You talked to your relative about Jesus, and yet it still ended in conflict. In our passage last week, God sent a drought on the people, which means it takes a while to then grow new fruit. Turning a large ship around is a process. And so just like putting our priorities right in our lives now, it can be a slow, arduous process to reap rewards. So how do we keep going? How do we continue even when the the results aren't immediate? We might start asking questions like, is anyone actually noticing whether I discipline my child or not? Is folding the laundry truly reaping cosmic rewards? 
does it have any earthly effects, let alone heavenly effects? Maybe you see that person you're discipling, and they're just not bearing fruit. Well, this is the similar situation that Israel, the remnant of Israel, found themselves here in chapter 2. Israel began to rebuild, and almost immediately they run into discouragement. The glory of the former temple had not returned. It wasn't as spectacular inside or outside. And they, re- they recognized it. They saw how unimpressive it was. And yet, the Lord speaks to his people. And he reminded them that he was still with them. And then he gave them several commands to continue the hard and inglorious work of this rebuild project. And then on top of that, the Lord of hosts made several glorious promises about this future glory that was still to come. The future glory of the temple, the nations, and a place of peace, which all find their fulfillment in the promised Son, Jesus Christ. So even though things seem mundane or insignificant, places where we don't see immediate results, they are still connected to the greater glorious work of God. So we'll look at chapters, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 this morning. And I've titled the sermon, Man's Mundane Work and God's Glorious Promises. So before we pray, I, I want to give a, a warning to help you hang with me a little bit. If you've heard me preach, probably at all, uh, I, I tend to have lots of references and want to go to other places in Scripture, chase down these themes to help build the context, understand the setting. And I do that because I love seeing how the Bible provides the background for itself. Meaning we don't need to understand archaeology or ancient Persian history in order to understand what's happening in Haggai. I believe it's important and necessary to understand other places in the Bible and how they inform our passage. Which should free us up to be really good students of God's word and redemptive history and not all of these other practices disciplines. This is our history. We have the Holy Scriptures to provide everything we need. But the problem is because we're not as familiar with a lot of biblical passages, Haggai is a great example, it might take a little more work for us to see the connections that, that the original audience would have already had built in. And so as I studied this week, there was lots of themes, lots of background that went into this passage. And I want to make sure that it's something we can all follow. Um, and, and so my, my temptation is to take us all over the place. Like if you've seen the, the, that meme picture of the guy with the whiteboard filled with, with uh, thumbtacks and strings going all over the place, kind of the conspiracy theory um, that everything's connected, right? I don't want to be that guy. That's overwhelming. But this is that type of thing. It's a true story, though. It's not a conspiracy. It's God's big conspiracy where all the dots get connected in exactly the right ways. It's true. It's glorious. But I want us to not be overwhelmed. So I don't want to connect all the dots and explain everything and defend it in the sermon itself. So I'm going to say a few things to to provide background and not necessarily cite everything or or have a fuller 
explanation, but I, I have them all in the manuscript. So if you're curious, how did you get there? I have passages in the, in the manuscript that you can find online. Please ask me questions afterwards, but I, I hope that that would propel you to study the word on your own in a greater way. That we, the more we understand Genesis and Leviticus, the more we can understand Haggai, the more we can understand anywhere else in scripture as well. So let me pray. I pray that we would love God's word more and that it would help us to understand Haggai this morning to put into practice in our lives this week. So let's pray. Psalm 119 says, The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Father, this is what we want for us. Help us to love your word more. Help us to know your word more. May we be satisfied with you as our portion and hasten to keep your commandments. Even when the wicked surround us, may your word be the deep anchor that keeps us in place. May we fear you this morning and offer you right worship. We thank you that not only can we dwell in your presence, but you delight in us. And we confess that we can't do any of these things without your Holy Spirit. So please help us to hear what you have to say this morning, to understand it, to apply it. May I speak truth and be faithful to your word. And all of it, may we see your glory and how it's tied to our mundane acts of obedience today and this week. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at some background first. And one of the one part we didn't talk about last week in Haggai is how it's organized. And so as you read it, you probably notice that Haggai organizes the book around several dates, several markers. And all the dates have significance to them to relate to what Haggai is speaking about. So chapter 1, verse 1, it, it tells us that it, was, it took place during the sixth month, on the first day of the month. And this would have marked the new moon. And this is essentially what the people experience as they shake off the cobwebs of their misguided priorities and reorient to the Lord. And they begin working on the temple in obedience and blessing. And so in our passage in verse 1, we see it's the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. And this is when they receive the Lord. And there's two events that occur during the seventh month in the history of Israel. The first is that it, was, it marked the dedication of the temple in King Solomon's day. So here we are in a book that focuses significantly on various types of houses. That's an interesting detail. Haggai's people are in the process of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding what Solomon had originally built and dedicated. And secondly, the seventh month is when the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles occurred. And it might initially seem irrelevant to our text. So we, this is why I want to give some background so we can make sense of it as we proceed through the passage. So a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles. 
back when the Lord brought the people out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery, brings them into the wilderness, he instructed them to keep three events, three feasts, the Passover, Pentecost, and then our feast here, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Booth is simply another word for tent. And there's several places in scripture that provide different angles to what this feast was about. And that hopefully will lend some more insight to our our passage. The Feast of Tabernacles took place, the first day of the feast was in the seventh month, beginning on the 15th day of the month. Uh, So Leviticus 23 gives us a little insight into this. It says, on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day of the, on the first day, the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So they're remembering their wilderness journey by collecting branches and making very, very temporary houses or tents. And they would dwell in them during the course of the feast. It was a reminder, it says, that to remind them of how God had brought them out of Egypt. And the branches, this, this leafy tent was also meant to be a reminder of the original tabernacle, the Garden of Eden. This was the the tabernacle where God dwelled with Adam before the fall. So day one of the feast is the 15th day of the month. So day seven would have been the 21st day, which is where we are in Haggai. And each day they were to bring offerings of food, grain, burnt sacrifices, and drink offerings. This reminds us that Remember last chapter, there was futility related to all of those things because of their misplaced priorities. So God brought drought on their produce, and so now they have less things to offer at this type of of feast. But in addition to those types of offerings, the people were also called to sacrifice bulls on each day. So on day one, they would sacrifice 13 bulls, uh, 12 on day two, 11 on day three, and so on. In total, they would sacrifice 70 bulls. Now, if you remember back when uh, John preached a few weeks ago on Exodus, he pointed out that 70 is a very significant number in Scripture. What does it represent? It represents the nations. Anytime you see 70 in the Bible, at least have that thought in mind. So, beyond offerings on behalf of Israel... The feast made offerings on behalf of the entire, of all the nations. And the bull is the animal for offering atonement. Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. So that the whole world would recognize the God of Israel as unique. Now, after the seventh day, on the eighth day, they would have a solemn assembly. In other words, they would, they would feast for the seven days. The end of the feast would culminate in a worship service. They're gathering 
with the ultimate point of worship. So there's, just to recap, there's several purposes to this feast. And I, I hope you can keep them in mind as we work through the passage and see where they show up. First, it's to remember their sojourning in the wilderness and to remember that God was with them in their midst. It was to give offerings to the Lord, both for themselves and for the nations. And it was driving towards a solemn day of assembly or a worship service. And here's one last little note on the Feast of of Tabernacles. Until this post-exilic period, the people had not observed this feast since the time of Joshua, the son of Nun. So at the very beginning of taking the land was the last time that they had observed this feast. Another indicator of a sick spiritual state for the people. But things are slowly getting put back in place. So we'll look at verses 2 and 3, where we find the people. The people are being led by Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they're continuing the work they began in the last chapter. When we left off, it was an encouraging scene. God had stirred them up to work and to rebuild the temple, and he'd made them promises. But now things have hit a speed bump. Things aren't going as well. Notice the people are called the remnant. These are the people who returned from the 70-year exile and are now back in the land. In the book of Ezra, we we looked at that a little bit last week. It also notes that there was 42,360 people who returned from exile to Judah. Now, if you look at other censuses before the exile, when Israel was in the land, there were usually millions of people living in Israel. Now there's 40,000 coming back to build the temple. Haggai, in in verse 3, asks three questions of the people, and they're all related to sight. He he asks, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as not as nothing in your eyes? Apparently, there were people who had seen Solomon's original temple. They were old enough to have, have lived before the exile, were taken into exile, and returned so they would have been in their 70s or 80s. They've, they've lived through a lot, and they could recall Israel's former glory. And now they look at this rebuilding effort, and it was not spectacular. They could remember back to Solomon's temple that was both glorious in appearance on the outside. It was covered with gold and uh, statues and all kinds of things that were glorious looking. And it was also glorious inside because that is where the presence of God was dwelling inside the Holy of Holies. The glory of God had dwelt in the midst of the people. And so now this rebuilding effort, this remnant looks at that and it is nothing in comparison to what Solomon's temple was like. Well, last week I I read a section of Ezra that described the celebration around this rebuilding effort. They started with the foundation and they rejoiced. But there was a a piece I left out. So I'm going to read that this week and just see what it adds to the picture. This is from Ezra 3. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. 
And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house was laid. Now here's the part that I left out. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The people are a remnant, and so is the house of the Lord. The people are working, but they're not really seeing the payoff. There wasn't the outward glory of an impressive temple. And there also wasn't the inward glory of God dwelling in their midst. Ezekiel 10 describes how this glory left the temple before they were taken into exile. It raises questions for these people. Is God really with us? What are we doing? We're rebuilding this thing, but we are not seeing glory here. We are not seeing results. But Haggai continues in verse 4. He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. While the remnant was struggling with what they physically saw, remember, Haggai's questions all revolve around sight. Now here, the Lord gives commands based on faith. He says, be strong three times. There's a connection between what we can see and fear. Compare that with the call to be strong based on faith, what we can't see. One of the people addressed here is named Joshua, son of Jehozadak. But this idea of being strong and not fearing brings us back to another Joshua and the conquest of the promised land. Joshua, son of Nun, was the leader of Israel. He was part of the first generation of the Israelites who spied out the land. Ten of the, ten of the spies went into the land. They saw giants of the land and their hearts melted. And then they come back to Moses and say, there is no way we can take this land. The giants are ferocious. The first generation was weak and fearful and sloth. But Joshua and Caleb as well saw with eyes of faith. They were strong because they trusted that the Lord would be with them. And he had promised them that land. And so Joshua in time takes over for Moses. And when Moses commissions Joshua in Deuteronomy, listen to how familiar or how similar it sounds to the people who are addressed in Haggai. Moses says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Very similar to Haggai. Be strong. Don't fear. The Lord is with you. So based on what Joshua is promised, he led the people into the land. And they vanquished their foes as they went. Now the remnant who's doing this rebuilding effort probably didn't feel as triumphant about their work compared to the Israelites taking the promised land. But the call was the same. God had promised he was with them, not because they had a glorious temple, 
but because God is faithful to his covenant people. And he doesn't need a physical building to dwell in. He doesn't even need a standing army. He brings his own. Have you ever wondered why it says Lord of hosts so many times? In these latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the phrase is used all over the place, more than any other passage or or part of the Old Testament. Is Lord of hosts, is that just a poetic flourish? Is it just kind of a nice thing to say? Now remember that Israel is an occupied nation. Darius is the king of Persia, and he's the ruling authority here. Well, he, with his blessing, they were able to rebuild and continue the work. Israel is is not independent. Israel is under someone else's authority. And Israel has no army. Remember, they are a small group. They have no means to muster an army of any size. But God has an army. That's what Lord of hosts means. And when he promises to be with them, that means he's bringing his whole angelic army with him too. It's the same for us. It's the same for us as it was for the people in Haggai's time and the second generation who took the land. Be strong. Don't fear. Work. This isn't just a nice mantra. This isn't just macho talk to be strong in your own power. This is what the Lord of hosts commands us. And why? It says, because he's with us. So when you're fighting complacency or addiction, be strong because the Lord of hosts is with you. When you're considering leaving your job to recalibrate your priorities, the Lord of hosts is with you. Be strong. When you have to confront someone else's sin, Be strong. The Lord of hosts is with you. When we as a church need to confront unrepentant sin or go into a world who hates the gospel, be strong. The Lord of hosts is with us. When all we see are giants surrounding us, be strong. The Lord of hosts is with us. God has told the people that he's with them. He's with them because he made a covenant with them. He rescued them, brought them out into the wilderness to dwell in their midst. These two tabernacles. Then he spoke to them at Mount Sinai. And the mountain was filled with thunder and lightning and fire. And the people trembled. They had the law. They had the stipulations and conditions for blessing and curse. They had instructions for building the tabernacle where God would truly dwell in their midst. God had promised to dwell with them. And God is faithful to his promises. And then he reminds them again, fear not. Fear is another cause that can often keep us getting hung up on our priorities. Why did you procrastinate? Why did you say yes to that decision at work, even though it goes against your conscience? Why'd you spend so much time waffling about what to say or to actually do your work? Senior saints, what keeps you from speaking truth and wisdom into us who are younger? And it's often fear. But again, we're told not to fear. That's not a suggestion. That's not reasonable advice. As if we just shouldn't fear and do your best. God commands us to fear not. 
And that begins with being strong in faith and taking steps of obedience, getting to work. Even if the results aren't flashy or instant. Covenant faithfulness is not always flashy. Here's a few ways that might look for you this week. It could look like doing things without grumbling. It means living with intention and considering your ways. Evaluating, again, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your attention. And making changes, even if they're small. It means doing things in righteousness that no one else but the Lord might notice. It means keeping your home is honoring to the Lord of hosts. It means standing up for truth, even if it doesn't reap the tangible rewards you had hoped for. Kids, it means doing what you've been told to do, even if brother or sister isn't doing it, or even if they get credit for it too. That's covenant faithfulness. It means a lot of small, faithful steps of obedience, trusting that God is with you and has promised to you. Our work is often mundane. But deep down, the second half of our passage is a reminder that there is great glory that supports our work. So we don't always experience the signs and wonders of the Exodus. But we have the same promises. We can still utilize those promises of future glory to encourage and strengthen our faith for the work that's in front of us. If the seeming futility of our mundane tasks were all that there were to life, that would be disappointing. That would be depressing. But we have a glorious future to look towards. And when we have that tied to our mundane tasks, it can change our current approach to our current challenges and the work that God has tasked us with. So this glorious future is seen in these promises that the Lord makes in the second half, in verses 6 through 9. He gives four great promises that he says will happen in a little while. He will shake the world. He will shake the nations. The future house will be even more glorious than the former. And he will give peace. So verse verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Haggai uses this phrase, I will shake, three times in the book. Two times in our passage and one at the very end. We'll look at next week. And when you hear the phrase, I will shake the heavens and the earth, do you automatically jump to end times and destruction and judgment? It sounds like that. But before we jump ahead and assume we know what it means, let's look closely, slow down, and see what Haggai might actually be driving at. So in verses 6 and 7, the Lord will shake two things. The world, or the cosmos, and the nations. So first, the Lord will shake the cosmos. Look at all the things that he says he will shake. Heavens, earth, sea, dry land. These are all things that were created in creation, day two and three. And now the Lord is saying, I will shake all of that. It's shorthand for <laughs> all of his creation. Haggai also says that it's in a little while. 
Now, it, it, it might be a literal shaking. Therefore, maybe it's the end of the world as we know it, the end of the earth. And while there might have been a, a literal earthquake associated with it, it's getting at something uh, more symbolic. Hebrews 12 quotes this passage. And it, it takes it and it connects it to the shaking that happened at Mount Sinai previously. So I, I explained that a little bit ago that when the people got the law, when the people got the covenant, they went to Mount Sinai and it was a fearsome sight. There was fire and thunder and trembling. And that's what Hebrews is, is pointing back to. There was a literal trembling, but the significance was greater because it, it was part of the old covenant coming in. An old covenant to the old world. Now the Lord is about to shake the cosmos again. Because he's bringing an end to that world and replacing it with something newer and better. It's a better mountain, Mount Zion, and a better covenant, the new covenant. Well, here's a a, a hint at why it's a better new covenant. He's going to shake the nations so that all the the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So not only will the Lord shake the cosmos, he's going to shake the nations as well, the peoples. Again, is this a literal or figurative shaking? Well, Persia and the land of Judah will shortly be overthrown and conquered by the Greeks and then in turn the Romans. So there is an overturning, a shaking. But is is that what the text has in mind? This is where I think the Feast of Tabernacles can, again, shed some light on our passage. Remember the reason about the 70 bulls at the feast. They gathered in temporary leafy houses, reminding themselves of the Garden of Eden, and then they offered bulls on behalf of the nations. And now the Lord is promising that the nations will be shaken and the treasures brought in. So first, the treasures. What are these? There's this idea of treasures from the nations coming into the Lord's house that goes all the way back to Exodus. It was the case when the Israelites plundered the Egyptians, took all their riches, and constructed the tabernacle and the holy vessels. It was true when King Hiram of Tyre brought all kinds of riches and supplies to King Solomon for the first temple. And it was true with Cyrus and Darius, who sent supplies along with this rebuilding effort. And in the case of these kings, they did it understanding that they would be blessed through the building of the temple as well. This is mentioned in Ezra and also in in 1 Kings. But this promised shaking will be more than the physical, material blessing of riches. It looks ahead to the day when the people of these nations themselves will be treasures. The people will come in to the house of God. This is the earth-shaking good news of the new covenant. While it wasn't a literal, worldwide, universal earthquake, the significance of this disrupts and affects the entire cosmos. It would be an end to the old covenant and in with the new. And it would be for all the nations. The nations would be included in this So what kind of house will this be? What should the people be looking for? 
There was a temple promised in Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a vision at the end of his book. And it was far superior to King Solomon's temple. Is that the kind of temple that these people might have expected? Would it be simply taking Solomon's temple and adding on to what they already have? What should they be looking for? Well, compared to the tabernacle, that was a large mobile tent. Then the temple was a permanent structure, and everyone in Israel had to come to the temple to to be where the presence of God was. But it was still temporary. The Babylonians destroyed the first temple, King Solomon's temple. And now the rebuild reminds the people how insignificant an actual building can be. And again, let's think about the feast. It was a tangible reminder of the temporary nature of things. The the promise here of future glory looks toward something more glorious, an even more permanent house of God. And the sacrificial system that they were under was going to be replaced by a more permanent, a more lasting and effective sacrifice as well. So this house in Haggai will be rebuilt And over time, King Herod will then build it up and and add some splendor to it. It does become more spectacular. But that isn't the promise in mind here. And it's not Ezekiel's vision either. While that vision is of a more glorious temple than even Solomon's, it's symbolic. It was never meant to be built. Because it doesn't improve on the Old Covenant. It was still a central building that could be destroyed, and there were still sacrifices offered in that vision. The purpose of that was to point to the greater, symbolic, more glorious house. And here's where we pick up the beginning of that house. The house of God that the people had longed for began with an infant. So to see how these themes tie together, turn to Luke chapter 2. Hopefully it's obvious what kind of infant this is, but this is where we see some of these themes come together in the story of Simeon. Simeon's a God-fearing Jew, and he was stirred by the Holy Spirit, and he was promised by the Holy Spirit that he would see Jesus. So verse 27 of chapter 2. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... He, Simeon, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, or nations, and for glory to your people, Israel. In the glorious economy of the kingdom, God sent an infant into the temple. And for the first time since the Lord of hosts had departed before exile, the glory returned and dwelt within the temple. It was a hint of what was to come. He would bring salvation, obviously. He would bring the presence of God. And he would bring it to the nations. It was a glimpse of the greater temple, the greater covenant and the greater people of God. This is the world-shaking good news promised in Haggai. The shaking would continue. Jesus dies on the cross, and the world turns dark. 
And then the ground shook and he rose three days later. Then Jesus sends his spirit at Pentecost to be a permanent indwelling in his people. And then the final blow to the old covenant. This temple that Haggai's people are rebuilding is destroyed in 70 AD. Clear break from the old covenant to the new. And this new world is far more glorious than the former. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, people are brought into the new covenant. And those who are become part of this temple, this house of God. The glory of God resides in us through the Holy Spirit. Peter says we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. This is the glory of the church. So I'm going to rattle off six reasons. There's probably more, but here are a few reasons why Jesus ushering in a new temple, a new house of God, composed of the saints, is more glorious than any physical building that they were longing for. Number one, it's an eternal house. Number two, it's indestructible because it's been resurrected. Number three, it's built on better sacrifices. And four, it's built on better promises. Five, it's, it's made of living stones, as I mentioned. That we are the house of God. And number six, it's more inclusive than the former house. Because all nations will stream in. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. This house far surpasses a building, even one built with silver and gold. And finally, we come to the last promise, that there will be peace in this place. The final promised blessing is one of peace. The Lord will bring that peace to this place. And the place being Jerusalem, which means foundation of peace. As one commentator wrote, if this promise concerning peace is from physical fighting, it has not been fulfilled yet because Jerusalem has been anything but a city of peace. It has to mean a different kind of peace. And that's the peace which Christ brings between God and man. The Lord of hosts is not at war with his covenant people because Christ has atoned for them, not through the blood of bulls, but through his own righteous blood shed outside the foundation of peace. And ultimately, this peace will spread and turn into visible peace. The gospel will prevail. All nations will come in. The glory of God will fill the whole earth, and man will dwell in the presence of God forever. Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. That's what we long for. So in conclusion, be strong. See things with the eyes of faith and then get to work in obedience. And fear not because the Lord of hosts is with you. What is God calling you to work at? What specific ways can you take dominion? Figure that out and then be strong and get to work. See how your mundane actions bring glory to the Lord and play a role in the ultimate plan of God. 
even if it means changing diapers, crunching numbers at a computer, or simply reorganizing our calendars to make the Lord's priorities ours. Our privilege and job is to continue to build his kingdom until all the nations come in and we all dwell in his presence forever.